trying to make it real compared to what African American women, our kind of contribution to the liberation, not just of black people, but the liberation and the constant involvement of American society is to take what we have had to confront and endure and then keep that sense of joy and of humanity and of just graciousness. This week on The Janice Adams Show, Janet Dewart-Bell, social activist, award-winning television and radio producer, NPR alum, and author of the book, Lighting the Fires of Freedom, African-American Women in the Civil Rights Movement, Nine Profiles in Courage Against the Odds and Status Quo. First, the news. Today on The Janice Adams Show, Janet Dewart-Bell, social justice activist with a doctorate in leadership and change, award-winning television and radio producer, NPR alum, and author of the book, Lighting the Fires of Freedom, African-American Women in the Civil Rights Movement. Janet opens the book with this observation on Leah Chase, Queen of Creole Cuisine, master chef of her own world-renowned New Orleans restaurant, Dookie Chase. Her interracial gatherings were by their very nature in defiance of the South segregation laws. Remarkably, the restaurant was not raided or shut down for her then illegal activities, perhaps because she and her family were held in such high regard by their community, or perhaps because of New Orleans's independent spirit, exemplified by the Cajun French expression laissez le bon temps rouler, <laughs> let the good times roll. The New Orleans spirit sometimes obscures the racism and inequality that simmers beneath the surface. It is a city of contradictions. Janet, I wanted to ask you what not only Leah Chase's story tells us about the city of contradictions with this inequality simmering beneath the surface, but what it is that makes it iconic of a nation of contradictions. Well, I think you stated it very succinctly. That's the great American contradiction, isn't it? In the sense that the a country founded on freedom and liberty and uh, really based its prosperity, when you think about it, on the subjugation of other people. First of all, the... Um, extermination of Native people and the subjugation of Africans who they brought to this country as slaves. And so despite all that, you know, we, we know, and black women really, I think, understand this. I try not to deify black women, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but, I, but somehow we got it right. Uh, we got it right in the last few if you just take the presidential elections, particularly 2016, black women got it right. We knew we were not fooled by talk about post-racialism or things like that. We knew that we had to do the job of moving our nation forward. You know, we've always had a rather sanguine approach to how we do things, whether we were working as household workers and you know, providing uh, a future for our children. I talk often about the heroic sacrifice of domestic workers um, and how they, when you talk about uh, contradiction, many of, many of our people who, were, who we were taught to demonize, in a sense, you know, absolutely unfairly as people who were uh, house slaves as opposed to field slaves and what have you. But these, these women primarily who were subjugated to all kinds of brutal treatment, and, but who knew that what they had to do was to save themselves, save their, to save their people, and build a future for their children. And so when you look at the, um, the, some of the black women from, in the civil rights movement who, who somehow knew this, whether they were, whether they were 
taught specifically, like um, Kathleen Cleaver. She's probably the one who probably had more, um, at a more of an educated approach to white supremacy and racism than some of the others. But the other, but other people, and through their experiences, got it, but never succumbed to despair. But who, who maintain their sense of personhood and joy in the midst of all of this stuff that was put, that was put upon them. So it's, it's the understanding that there is a, that, you know, that there is a goal to reach that there are values that we supposedly live by, but we are very far away, we meaning the American society, very far away from those values, especially for black people. Somehow we, we move those to, we move black people, the country moves black people to a different category. But these women, these women who pushed ahead, uh, it, and they might have led from the middle of the pack or the back of the pack, what have you, but who pushed ahead for the advancement of black people during the civil rights movement, just their, their, very, their very efforts were so extraordinary. I'm just, I, you know, if I get discouraged, I just have to read about them, and I just get, um, you know, I just get encouraged again. Absolutely, and, and, you know, listening to the tenor of your voice as you speak about this, no, we don't want to deify black women, but Coming through the storms, black women have learned a lot and given a lot. And what our foremothers have learned and what it has done to shape who we are today. I mean, just the story of Leah Chase, where you begin the book, who is coming at it at a very unassume, as a very unassuming person. And yet, what she does for the movement. Let's just hear you read a little section of the book. I'd be happy to do that. Leah Chase is very remarkable because she's mostly thought of as a celebrated chef. But she was really more than that. She and her husband and her husband's family uh, hosted meetings of civil rights workers when it was absolutely against the law. Their business could have been shut down. Mrs. Chase is so modest about what her contribution is. But when she talks about the movement, you can just hear her when she says, I think the movement influenced everybody. People my age, we were a bit frightened about it. It was so different from what we were trying to do. For instance, we were working with the NAACP, trying to work in the system, abide by the rules. Don't offend this one, don't offend that one, and get it done. But then here comes the young people in the movement, and they said, no, we're going to do this. And we thought, oh, God, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? People my age were kind of frightened. We didn't know what was going to happen. I'd listen in on the meetings and what they had to do. I said, oh, my goodness, they're going to get in trouble. They're going to do this and they're going to do that, but they did it. And it really taught me a lesson. Sometimes to just bam those down, you know, and just take care of it after that. Now, we worked in the NAACP trying to do this, trying to do that. That movement was just too slow. Now that I look back at it, it would have never gotten done. We would have been here till today trying to work within the system. Sometimes to get things done, you just have to bam it, do it. Sometimes we opened doors and we were not ready for what was behind those doors. And that is because we didn't know. All those things, those people, we looked at them as, oh, you're so radical. But they were true to what they did and they were sincere about their work and they worked at it. All those things helped us move to where we are today. If they hadn't done their jobs or what they had to do, we wouldn't be here today. And then she talks about the power of hosting her food. She said, they, that means people of all ages, not just the young people, would come here and we would feed them and they would plan their meetings. We had a room upstairs at that time where they would plan all their meetings then they would go out. Some would go to Mississippi and got put in jail, had all kinds of things happen to them. 
Then they would come back. My job was to feed them all the time and let them have this place to meet. I didn't think I was doing anything brave. I just thought I was doing what I was supposed to do. It was nothing glorious. I just knew I had to feed them. When they would come here for meetings, my job was to feed them. It was always gumbo and fried chicken, always a bowl of gumbo. Over a bowl of gumbo, you can really talk it over and change a whole lot of things. When I think back, in some ways, we changed the course of America over a bowl of gumbo. Would you just tell us uh, how you framed this book, how you extracted the women you wanted to focus on, why, what they tell us in the overview about not only what was going on then, but even more importantly, what is going on now? What I wanted to do was to talk to women who represented different aspects of involvement, commitment, and particularly since my, my doctorate is in leadership and change, I was focusing on leadership. And, I, and my theory of leadership is that you can lead anywhere along the spectrum, in the back of the pack, in the middle of the pack, and what have you. And you have different styles. And the women who are in the book represent servant leadership, but also they are very adaptive and they are transformational. So I wanted to talk about people who, even though they would not analyze themselves in this way, as I took a, a view about their contributions and involvement, I wanted to see where they fit along the spectrum and to see if we could extract lessons for, not just for leadership, but for inspiration going mm-hmm. forward. Because each of these women really inspired me in different ways. It's a very personal book in that sense. Someone's, uh, you know, I've been asked, how did you pick them? And I said, well, one, because I like them. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. and, uh, even though I didn't know them, I didn't know all of them personally. I only knew maybe three people personally. I really met Mrs. Chase through this process. And she just is such a bigger-than-life personality. So much so, you know, when people are that, I guess, subliminal in a sense, you know, mm. just, uh, that they don't, they don't even understand what their impact is. And so she is so self-effacing. But I'm not the only one who recognized her. You know, most people, they think of her as a, as a celebrated chef or she was the inspiration for Princess Tiana and Disney's Princess and the Frog. And, you know, but when you talk to her, the depth, and the commitment she has to not only black people but for this country is just palpable. I mean, this woman has so much strength and determination. When Hurricane Katrina came, she could have moved, she could have closed her restaurant, what have you. What happened was her son had the presence of mind to run in and save her wonderful black artwork, which at that time was one of the largest collections of African-American art. Oh, wow. he, had, he rushed in and he saved that as the waters really were inches away from the paintings. And I, as I say, that art is where it's supposed to be right now. It's back on the wall. But Mrs. Chase could have moved anywhere, but she chose to live in a FEMA trailer while they were reconstructing her restaurant because she wanted to continue her commitment to the community, which she says has given her so much. Mm-hmm. In speaking with her, do you have a sense of what her lowest point would have been in her life? I often say that she's more Catholic than the Pope. She really is. <laughs> she answers to a higher authority. Even when you're talking to her, you see her looking off in the distance where she is Uh, Looking at, and I'm a bit of a mystic, I have to admit that, when you talk about the angels or the the sounds of the universe, she hears those. She she is so grounded with where she is. She's grounded in in, uh, New Orleans culture, Louisiana culture, um, black culture. You know, she's an American all the way. She believes in the ideals of this country. She knows we haven't kept them. We haven't met them, but she 
believes in those, but she always answers to a higher authority. Whether she would know it or whether you are extrapolating it on her behalf, what do you think has been her greatest triumph? Her greatest triumph? So far, I'll put it that way. Okay, that's good enough. I think her greatest triumph was being visionary in the sense that she was willing to try things that had not been done before. And the reason she was willing to do that was she related them to her life uh, a little bit. So, for example, the reason she amassed this great collection of African-American art, she was asked by someone locally to be on the local art museum board. She says she knew nothing about art, but she thought, okay, maybe if I get this position, it will be helpful for my business. And actually, it was. And that's art and the ability of artists to raise the culture of people. To raise the culture of people, reaching into that culture. Tell us about her food. Oh, my goodness. Her food is so good. Um, After the interview was uh, concluded, I had a videographer with me who, who just fell in love with her, as did I. And uh, she, after several hours of sitting without breaks, my videographer, George, and I were passing out. But she's like, I think it's wonderful that young people like you are telling these stories. Well, I have to admit, I was in my 60s when I interviewed her. (laughs) She was 90. And she talked about young people like you, which I chuckled. Mm -hmm. And we, we continued. But at the end of that, she said, would you like something to eat? And this is what Southerners like to think of as Southern hospitality. Some people have it, some do not. She has it. And we thought, well, that was an imposition. We said, no, ma'am, you know, that's perfectly all right. And she said, no, you can't come into my restaurant and not have anything. She gets up from this interview, which had been several hours. She walks into her kitchen, puts on her chef's apron, and cooks us fried chicken. (laughs) Now, you know, gumbo has to start early. So she completed the gumbo, and she served us fried chicken and gumbo, which is what she served during the Civil Rights Movement mm-hmm. when people were there. Human beings have to have a point of contact, and her point of contact is sitting down and sharing a communal meal. She did that for the demonstrators. It didn't matter who they were, whether they were the unnamed students from SNCC or it was Thurgood Marshall or Martin Luther King or whoever it was, they got treated with the same first-class service. When we come back, more with our guest, Janet Dewitt Bell, author of Lighting the Fires of Freedom, African-American Women in the Civil Rights Movement. Trying to make it real compared to what? Trying to make it real compared to what? We're back here on The Janice Adams Show with our guest, Janet Dewitt-Bell. She's the author of the book, Lighting the Fires of Freedom, African-American Women in the Civil Rights Movement. Coming through the book with its profiles of nine women of the civil rights era, eight of whom are still alive, I was taken by the story of Diane Nash. Chicago born in 1938, she was one of the movement's truly over-the-top, impressive youth leaders. Oh my goodness, Diane Nash is uh, one of those amazing people who... uh, you know, more more people need to hear her story. But she's another one. She's hard to, for you to have her sit down and talk about herself and talk about what it is she did. What Diane Nash did as a student at Fisk University, she took over the Freedom Ride from the Congress on Racial Equality when that bus was attacked and they could not go on because she said, if we let violence stop us now. We will never progress. And also, if yeah. people know that all you have to do is create violence, you know, they will create more violence. So that was such a brave thing to do. She was a student, and she had been the leader of the Nashville Student Movement, which really preceded the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Diane Nash passionately 
to this day, believes in nonviolence, not just as a tactic, but as a way of life. She, she should have been, at some point, uh, and maybe she was, promoted for the Nobel Peace Prize because I think Diane Nash probably is, in terms of philosophy, was probably a, I hadn't thought about it till this moment, but she really was a movement philosopher in that she took the idea of nonviolence and she said, let's work to make this a reality, not just a tactic. She took over the Freedom Ride and then a response to the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, she started a, the Selma Right to Vote campaign. I mean, this woman is just a young woman, as I say, barely older than those young people. And old in soul. Florida. That's right. Old soul. Mm-hmm. When you talk about Diane Nash, and of course, with she's the one who, whether she coined it or whether she propelled it, uh, but the jail no bail yes. campaign that she did. I think it's important for people to understand what it is that we're talking about these people having to face when they come up with a slogan like jail no bail. What was the price that they were saying they were willing to pay? Well, Diane Nash at one point went to jail when she was pregnant. You know, that was not for show. That was a commitment to, I'm saying that this movement and the freedom of our people is so important that I'm, I'm willing to pay a big price for that. And that's what, that's what she did. Now, she, to my knowledge, was not beaten like, like some people, the Ladner sisters, Joyce and Dory Ladner and various in, you know, various campaigns. Oh my God! People had guns put in their mouths. Young people. I mean, it doesn't matter what the age were, but that's how that's how violent the reaction to just saying no. We, you know, we are fighting this system. We want equality. People weren't talking so much against white supremacy because we somehow we didn't know it. In one sense, maybe it was good that some of us didn't understand white supremacy that way because maybe it would have been even more discouraging. Others really understood that what we were fighting against Mm -hmm. was not just the right to sit at, at, you know, not just public accommodation, not just the right to sit at some lunch counter. That was, you know, irrelevant. It was fighting a system that would hold human beings in bondage. And that's what slavery, that's what Jim Crow, that's what segregation laws really were designed to do. And now the society that made that acceptable. Made it acceptable, yes. And fighting against it to to this day. In the last presidential election, there was a poll of people leaving the booths in South Carolina. And there were people, I don't remember the exact percentage, uh, white people, I think it was up to, it was close to 20% who thought the 13th Amendment should be abolished. Mm-hmm. They were ready to appeal, to repeal the 13th Amendment. They were for... The 13th Amendment the that ended slavery in yes. the United States. You yes. have people who want to reinstate the yes. enslavement re- in this country. Who wanted to reinstate slavery and who thought it was perfectly fine for the bondage of other human beings. You know, it's interesting when I speak around the country and people say things like, or they refer to people who talk about, you know, people are afraid that this country will no longer be a majority white country. And I said, wait a minute, this country was not originally a majority white country. Y'all do know there were Native peoples here. I said, so if we want to go back to the Iroquois and the Navajo and the Mi'kmaq and all Mm -hmm. those, I said, I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is their country. I'm fine with their taking their country back. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they say, oh, no, we mean we want... They, they, but that's not really what they mean. No. And no, they, they, they don't. There's this fiction that somehow the country uh, miraculously became a land of white folks who, when you think about it, too, it's interesting how the out-migration 
from Europe was not necessarily the, quote, upper classes. You know, when you think about United States or Australia, places like that, they were sending people they didn't necessarily want. (laughs) They were sending people they didn't want. They were also sending some very privileged people, which is why they structured enslavement the way they did because, you know, I was in London a while ago and and I had just flown in from Paris. And in Paris, as we flew over leaving Paris, we saw the land was structured so that you had normal parcels of land, you know, some larger, some smaller, but basically normal. But flying into London, you're coming over all of these old castles and, you know, the huge land masses. And it was so striking to see normal acreage to just huge cities with one main home on it, one main castle on it. And so I asked the driver about that. And he said, well, that's because you and the colonies have the second son. And I said, you know, I mean, what are you talking about? And he said, oh, no, well, under the British system, the eldest son inherits everything. And at his largesse, the rest of the family is taken care of. So it is the second son who would come to the Americas because they'd grown up with all this amazing wealth, but they had none of it in their own right. Right. They might have gotten a little buyout, essentially, (laughs) to get rid of them, but they did not have that exorbitant wealth in their own right. So when they came here, then they came and they created essentially some of the comforts that they had themselves, but they used enslaved labor in in order to be able to do it. Um, So the United States is that amazing amalgam of essentially the people who come from Europe coming from, yes, the upper echelon of Europe and those people who were exploited by the upper echelon, who were, as Charles Dickens talks about, you know, someone who ends up in prison for needing some bread and stuff like that. Right, so, so slaves, indentured servants, people exactly. like that. So that was, that's part of the contradiction mm-hmm. and part of the contra- contradiction that's really the subtext of... Uh, New Orleans, and also our, our existence in this country. Janet Dewart-Bell reads from her interview with Black Panther Party leader, attorney, and law professor Kathleen Cleaver. Both of my parents were activists in the civil rights struggle before I was born and before they met each other. My mother was the daughter of a minister in Richmond, Virginia. Her father, who was also a minister, was a professor at Virginia Union. She and her sister went to school all year round, and by the time my mother was 13, she was in college where her father taught. By the time she was 16, she had a master's degree in math from the University of Michigan. She met my father while she was studying at the University of Michigan. My father was born in 1911, so he's of the generation of Thurgood Marshall and Ronald Reagan, that era. He was a professor at a black liberal arts college, Wiley, in Texas. He was doing a master's or Ph.D. doing his graduate work in sociology. He had graduated from Fisk. They met and they fell in love, and they got married in Texas where he was teaching. I was born there in 1945, right before the war ended. When I was born, my father was involved with community organizing around the challenge to the all-right primary in Texas. He was what you would call now a civil rights activist. He wasn't an attorney. He was a professor. His field was sociology, but he was doing the organizing, and it was interracial. Both my parents were participants in the civil rights challenges. My mother was a member of something called the Southern Negro Youth Congress, which James Jackson and some other people started. James Jackson was her classmate and neighbor. He ended up becoming very, very active in the Communist Party. She didn't. 
She was an activist, but not in the Communist Party. But people she knew were. My father's activism was based in Texas. I don't think they probably had socialist parties in Texas. Later, we left. We lived in Tuskegee and then left when my father was hired to work in the International Development Agency. Essentially, he became a foreign service officer and moved to India. His field was community development, so what he was incorporated in was an early project. First, it was the Ford Foundation. Then it became something called TCM, the Technical Cooperation Mission of the United States, to provide rural community development to Indian farmers. That sounds like a good thing, but the purpose is anti-communism. India is not a communist state. China is a communist state. India and China were developing a very close relationship. This upset the United States, which has already got India in its grasp with Pakistan. Pakistan broke away. The population of India is still somewhat smaller than it used to be when it was British India. Still, India is huge. India is positioned in the center of Asia. My experience with that is that we go to a country where most of the people are brown and really brown, not like Alabama. There are color variations, but when you see a crowd of Indians, you see brown people, a sea of brown people. When you see the president and the ministers, they're brown. In New Delhi, which is a famous imperial capital of all kinds of different empires, the British Empire, the Mughal Empire, and this empire, they have all these amazing palaces and ancient business buildings, and they've got the Taj Mahal. I'm in a country of dark people that's amazing, and I'm not quite out of reading fairy tales. It's like a magical place, but all these people are black, and their culture is so elegant and amazing. Listen, white supremacy evaporated immediately, as if it had a chance with me anyway, not with my parents. It was gone. There was absolutely no substance whatsoever that could convince me that there was anything superior about whites or anything superior about white culture. I'm looking at one of the most ancient cultures, and it's extraordinary, and all the people are brown. Boom. It was over with. White supremacy is done, and I'm nine years old. It never comes back. When we come back, more with our guest, Janet Dewart Bell, author of Lighting the Fires of Freedom. More after the break. Trails of troubles, rows of battles, eyes of victory. with our guest, Janet Dewart-Bell, and Janet is the author of Lighting the Fires of Freedom, African-American Women in the Civil Rights Movement. Janet, how did you get the idea to write this book? Well, people ask me how long I've been writing the book sometimes, and my answer is either two years or all my life. (laughs) It's been a passion of mine, and it really came to, to the fore when I was studying for my doctorate, what I wanted to do was really preserve different voices, their perspectives and different opinions on things. And I tried as best as you can, you know, as, as an author, you have to put your ego in there, and you, but you try to move it away for, so that you can actually hear other people and present what it is they want to say. And so... That's what I tried to do with the nine women in this book. Janet Dewart Bell, author of Lighting the Fires of Freedom, African American Women and the Civil Rights Movement. Janet, I look at this list of women, Leah Chase, June Jackson Christmas, Aileen Hernandez, Diane Nash, Judy Richardson, Kathleen Cleaver, Gay McDougal, Gloria Richardson, 
Merle Evers. And my favorite photo in the book is an iconic photo that I'll link to on the website so people can see it. But it is of Gloria Richardson. <laughs> July 21st, 1963, she's part of the Cambridge Nonviolent Action Committee, and the National Guard is standing around her guns, bayonet, you know, at the ready to intimidate these black marchers who are there for just human rights. That's what all this is about, Mm -hmm. basic human rights. And... She's walking by, and she simply pushes the gun with the bayonet away and keeps on her walk. Well, I say she swats the gun because she thought, how dare they? But she was not, you know, I just want to emphasize that she was the leader of that movement. She became the leader um, after she really got involved because her teenage daughter, and her friends, they had to go to school and various things like that. So then she grow into, I need to do this to support them. And she's as feisty today as she was then. Janet Dewitt Bell reads from her interview with Merle Evers, widow of assassinated civil rights leader Medgar Evers, whose story is told in part in the film Ghosts of Mississippi. Mrs. Evers was later elected chair of the NAACP. Medgar and I moved to the Mississippi Delta, a town called Mound Bayou, formed by former slaves. Medgar was the first known African American to apply for admission to the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss. He applied to the law school. He went to visit with Dr. E.J. Stringer, president of the NAACP Mississippi State Conference, to talk about the NAACP supporting him in a suit for admittance. Instead, They talked him into taking the position as the first field secretary for the NAACP and opening an office in Jackson. A very, very interesting time. It was not only typing, organizing events or celebrations, or even the sad things to acknowledge people who had been hurt, who had been killed. I did research for his speeches. I even wrote some of them. We were behind the cotton curtain because you cannot get information out to the wire services that you could in any other part of the country. It meant being concise with what you reported and sending that information to the NAACP office in New York City, and you did it by telegram. I was a welcoming committee to people who came in. Everyone visited our house. Our house was so small, but we always found a place I think of Thurgood Marshall, Constance Baker Motley, attorney Derek Bell. What a terrible time I had trying to balance a budget of $25 every two weeks, feeding and housing people. But it was our home. Many of us bonded. There are a few of us still around. We have been there. It was an exciting but frightening time because you stared at death every day and you walked and death walked along with you. But there was always hope. And there were always people who surrounded you to give you a sense of purpose. You try to prepare. You do a little role playing. I personally would put myself in a position mentally where I had just lost my husband. I knew it was coming. I recall a conversation with Medgar not too long before his assassination. I said to him, I can't live without you. I can't make it without you. And he looked at me and he said, you're much stronger than you think you are. You will be okay. You must believe it. Today, when I visit my former home, I can still see the blood. We needed to get away from that place. Our oldest son, Daryl Kenyatta, reached a point where he refused to eat. He would not study. He would not talk. My daughter would go to bed with her dad's picture holding it every night. The youngest one, Van, who was three, would go to bed with this little rifle. I knew that we could no longer live in that house. A woman who was lonely and afraid. 
but one who is determined to make it. Everything I did was based on what I thought Medgar would have wanted and the promises that I made to him the night before he was killed. My grandmother said to me, you run as far away from Mississippi as you could get without going into the ocean. California became home, and until this day, it still is. Merle Evers, I mean, she is an icon, someone that those of us who are aware of her, we, we know that she came to national prominence for the most tragic of reasons because mm. she was married to Medgar Evers, who was killed in the driveway of his own home by Byron Dela Beckwith, and the story of his murder in retrospect is retold on film. But you know her in an entirely different way. Well, I know Mrs. Evers a couple ways. One, through my husband, Derek Bell, because he was a NAACP Legal Defense Fund attorney. He was the attorney for the Evers' older son, Daryl Kenyatta. And he actually stayed in that home a week before Medgar Evers was assassinated. Mrs. Evers always refers to him as Attorney Bell. She never calls him by his first name or anything else. I mean, after he left, after Derek left active civil rights work, like that litigating cases, he became a professor at Harvard Law School, among other things. But for Mrs. Evers, she refers to him, and rightly so, as Attorney Bell. So when I approach Mrs. Evers, she is a person who has clearly paid her dues. And she was just the most gracious. She is the most gracious, beautiful person. She is a bit formal, and I I love that about her because she and Medgravers married when she was a teenager. She really helped the movement to grow with her contributions and her dignity. She went back to school at age 31, yeah. raised three children, mm-hmm. young children, did all this stuff without the kind of support system that people might have thought she had. But with all that, she has, you know, what, what, what is that, a titanium spine? Is that what they call it? <laughs> but she is very warm and sweet and just kind. African-American women, our kind of contribution to the liberation, not just of black people, but the liberation and the constant involvement of American society is to take what we have had to confront and endure, and then keep that sense of joy and of humanity and of just graciousness. And she, to me, exemplifies all that. I think she's just wonderful. You say in the introduction to her chapter of the book, a Mississippi native, she knew the dangers of activism for racial equality and understood how her husband's prominence would bring unwanted attention and pressure to their lives. Their home was firebombed in 1962. In June 1963, Medgar Evers was assassinated in their driveway. Then a widow with three small children, Merle Evers stayed in their home in Mississippi for a year after the assassination of her husband, where the driveway was an emotionally intense daily reminder of her husband's death. You know, it struck me, this emotionally intense daily reminder of her husband's death the dri- that the driveway represented. But she was also living in a Mississippi that refused to hold accountable her husband's murderer, even though everybody knew who, who had done it. 30 years. It took 30 years to bring uh, his assassin to justice. And essentially, they, he was laughing in the face of uh, our justice system. Everybody knew who did it, all the black people, all the white people, but you could not get a conviction. Why? That was the code. I call it the white code. 
the white coat is that, hey, we'll protect our own against whatever comes against us, and that for white people to have this illusion of superiority, we have to believe that black lives do not matter, and that we will stand up for our right to be white under any circumstances. It was the upholding the system of white supremacy that people would buy into it, whether they were the judges, whether that quote they were the quote jury of their peers, or they were community people. That's the system that demeans and diminishes everyone, no matter what your race or your station in life. You refer to her consistently in a way you don't really refer to some of the other women in the book when you speak of them as Mrs. Evers. You refer to her consistently that way. Um, But you also say that she referred to your husband as Attorney Bell. And you say that um, he slept on the living room floor of their home, of of the Evers' home, with volunteer armed guards. African-American residents knew that while the movement was nonviolent in philosophy and practice, others were not. Black people also believed in Mm self-defense. So whether in legal defense or self-defense, I do want to know a little bit more about Derek. Just because of what he means to this movement as well that you're chronicling. Well, yes, thank you for that. Well, Derek, if you look really closely in some of these photos of the integration of the University of Georgia or the University of Mississippi, you will see a very, very young and quite cute Derek (laughs) Bell. And uh, he worked very closely um, originally with Thurgood Marshall, then with Constance Baker Motley. He loved Constance Baker Motley. And that's Part of this, his evolution is becoming, as I call him, a, a, a real a feminist over, over the years. And Derek, the reason I think he was such a fabulous professor at Harvard University, where he became the first African-American tenured at Harvard, was because he was, quote, grounded in black culture and because he had the experience of litigating all these cases and managing 300 school desegregation cases, you know, and and some law schools, and Harvard, too, at that time, if you were a practitioner, they would rather appoint someone who had a theoretical knowledge of law rather than someone who had a practical knowledge of law. But what they got in Derek was someone who had all of that and who was brilliant to boot. So Derek was really, they consider him the father of critical race theory. He has taught generations of law students, some of whom became civil rights, human rights attorneys, and others who became uh, corporate titans. I mean, I could name name a few. I was recently at um, a History Makers event where they were honoring Kenneth Chenault, who just retired as everything of American Express, right? The chairman, chief executive officer, you name it. And I was sitting there, and, the, and you know, the, the, the bio reel came on, and he was talking about what he and other black students at Harvard learned from Derek Bell. And because of Derek's sense of ethics and support and reaching out, and Derek's sense of excellence, like, you don't go into the community, poor community, stuff like that, with less than your first-rate effort. You just don't do it. And Derek always brought his best. He brought, he was at the top of his game wherever he was. And so some of his students are people who are the uh, civil rights lawyers, but there are a lot of people. So Derek did 20 years at Harvard, and then he left Harvard because Harvard refused Mm -hmm. to tenure a woman of color, and he came to uh, New York University School of Law where he spent his last 20 years. (laughs) Lighting the Fires of Freedom. African-American women in the civil rights movement, Janet Dewart Bell, thank you so much for being our guest on the show today. Oh, it is my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And 
these women really represent to me, if I can say, authenticity, courage, and purpose. And if we continue to remember that, these are not just historical figures. These are people who are living today, but for one, who's died since before the book was published. And everything they have to say, their insights, their courage, really are things we can live by today and plan for our future. Absolutely. Things we must live by today if we are going to have a future. Uh, that's even that's well said. Thank you. Thank you, Janet. Janice Adams Show. Our guest has been Janet Dewart Bell, author of the book Lighting the Fires of Freedom Profiles of Nine Riveting African American Women in the Civil Rights Movement. Our thanks to her and to you for joining us today. For more about today's show, including that amazing photo of Gloria Richardson staring down bayonet wielding law enforcement officers armed to intimidate civil rights demonstrators, visit my website, janusadams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-Adams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole. The show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, all rights reserved. Trying to make it real compared to what...